Hello, this is the Northwest Area Health Education Center podcast known as Healthcare Insights in Northwest North Carolina. I am Andrew Brewer. I'm the host of the podcast. And today I have the pleasure of introducing my distinguished guest, who is the Associate Dean for Continuing Medical Education, the Richard Janeway, MD, Distinguished Director of Northwest Area Health Education Center, the sponsor of this podcast, Associate Professor in Family Community Medicine, and adjunct professor in the Maya Angelou Center for Health Equity. He has too many board seats and community involvement things to uh, go into. We probably get into that at some point, but that would take up a lot of time here. Um, but I wanted to start out by saying, uh, first of all, welcome. And what got you on the path to, or what, what was your journey to get you here where you are now? So let's go from the beginning, like your college and what you wanted to be when you grew up, and 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 the 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 what? How did you prepare yourself to be chosen for the roles that you're in, and find your passion and live it so well? Oh wow, that's a big question. Um, so uh, I guess it'll I'll go back to uh, growing up in a large Catholic uh, family in uh, Dayton, Ohio, right outside of Dayton, Ohio. Um, and you kind of learned that from that environment that, uh, you know, you had responsibilities and you had to do the right things because quite honestly, there were too many eyes watching when you didn't. Uh, so that's like kind of, I'll attribute a lot of it to that. Um, secondly, very privileged uh, background from a, from a hardworking uh, family. Uh, my dad was the first in his generation to go to college, and he really put himself through graduate, undergraduate and an MBA program uh, in Wright State University in Dayton. And um, so we grew up with enough of what we needed when we needed it. And through a lot of luck, and I'm still not sure, I got accepted to uh, Emory University for my undergraduate school and really enjoyed that whole college life thing, as I think most people do, and had so much fun, I decided, well, I'll just stick around and get my master's degree in public health from Emory as well. Um, from there, it, it was another set of privileges, you know, of uh, networking and knowing the right people, and I got uh, hired I was, got engaged and got hired um, at a medical school. It was called Hahnemann School of Medicine at the time. It's now Drexel College of Medicine, uh, right out of the gate to be their director of medical school admissions. Uh, through that whole process, and everybody is connected, right? And, you know, um, it's a lesson in never burning a bridge because um, everybody is connected, and especially in the medical school world. And when uh, my much better half finished medical school and applied for residency programs, uh, Wake Forest, that then the Bowman Gray School of Medicine was the uh, her top choice in family and community medicine. So we, um, so I was the trailing trophy spouse, as I like to call myself. And uh, so we were going to land here for at least three years. And at the time, uh, Jim Thompson, who was the dean of the medical school, he literally called on a Saturday morning and said, hey, we really don't have anything for you, uh, but you're going to be here anyhow with your wife. He's going to be a resident with us. Uh, but why don't you come see us and we'll talk and meet, meet people and see what we can figure out. So they flew me up from Philadelphia here. Uh, we started chatting. Um, met with a lot of really nice, wonderful people who became great mentors of mine over the years. And got a phone call shortly after and said, hey, we, we were thinking about this new position. Um, and the job description is really kind of duties as assigned. And we're not sure if it's going to work. And but my you know, your resume came from us from all kinds of different angles from the Philadelphia medical school world to the uh, Winston-Salem Medical School Wake Forest world in different ways by different people. So let's let's just give this a go. And then that's when it started. So that was, gosh, it's almost 25 years ago um, that that started. 
And so for the first several years, um, I worked with uh, Dean Thompson, Jim Thompson, and literally my job was duties as assigned. So I went to meetings with him, um, went to meetings for him, got connected with lots of the most senior leaders in the community and in medical school world. And um, just as opportunities came along, I just, you know, you take the risk, the calculated risk and you hop on it. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of the long version of the story. Well, you, you, you said the word privilege a couple of times and, and I don't want you to discount the hard work that's involved in that. Oh, no, I don't, I don't. Yeah, no, there's, there's no, no intent to discount that, but um, you know, it is, you know, we I've tell I've told kids this all the time, young people, you know, when when kids are growing up and they're really young, we tell them, oh, it doesn't really matter who you know. Right. It's you, you've got to work hard and you do have to work hard. But it gets to the point where it is who you know and who you're connected with and how you're connected. Because um, had I not been as connected from our time in Atlanta at Emory to the time in Philly to the time here to Winston-Salem, um, I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't. I wouldn't be here. Well, I love I love your emphasis on the connection because we all are connected, and I think that that's a message that um, you know how you conduct yourself, how you show up, um, you know, and and the energy you bring to a room. And that's one thing I've always admired about you is you come into a place and you're not afraid to say what's you know what needs to be said, and you're not afraid to roll up your sleeves and and get get to work and and put some meat behind the words um so so that's one of the things i think is your strengths is you you come come to a room and you know you fill up your space very very well and i think that probably speaks to how the opportunities align themselves for you would you agree with that yeah i think i think that's probably a true statement sometimes over speaking um (laughs) at times as well as you well know andrew well, when you, um, you know, were in that aide de camp role, let's say, um, how did how did that how did you parlay that into your current role as director of Northwest AHEC? And, and tell us about like the shoes you fe- filled and and the things that you saw that were there that were challenging and how you, you know, made it your own. Yeah. So again, this, this, this AHIP world that we occupy, um, it's really fascinating in a lot of ways. So when I was um, working directly for the Dean at the time, there was leadership, leadership shifting happening, right? It happens from time to time. And uh, there was a vacancy. The, the person who held the position prior to mine uh, left the institution and I learned a great deal from her because I worked with her closely. And when this uh, the position became open, if you will, the acting dean at the time, who was actually Doug Maynard, who was a dear, dear friend and, and mentor in a lot of ways uh, as well, uh, asked me, he said, so this thing, this AHEC thing we've got going on over here, um, how about uh, how about diving into that and see if you can see what you can find, see if you see what's going on there. Cause what, one of my roles with the Dean at that time with Jim Thompson was, you know, I was kind of the head firefighter, if you will. So if there was a fire, whatever that was in a department or in this or that group, you know, I came in just kind of say, Hey, help me, help me understand what's going on and what, what do you need help with and how can we get through it? So in that process, I met pretty much everybody there was in a leadership position here at, at our medical center. Um, but this, this AHEC thing was part of the medical center, but it's also part of something bigger statewide. And I knew very little. And so the first couple of meetings I had with the AHEC staff, one uh, story I like to tell is with Lee Watkins, who's still with us, as you know. Um, and uh, we were just sitting around a room and I just said, Hey, I could use some help on just calendaring, like, right. Just help me. Who do I need to meet with when and how? Um, anybody interested in giving me a hand with that? Well, Lee's hand shot up pretty quick and she says, I know everybody. I've been here for a long time. I, I'm happy to help you. Um, she's still here to this day helping stuff move forward, right? So it's it's that kind of a connection that 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 you have. And so I took the first I was asked to take the first six months. So it was April through 
August of or October of two of nineteen or two thousand and one and put together a what is this thing called Northwest AHEC? What does it do, right? Like what what value does it bring to the institution, to the region? Um, what needs to happen, if you will. And then yeah, there was I just all I saw was incredible opportunities and really, really passionate people who show up for all the right reasons um, and then do some pretty amazing things um, to help others meet their goals and their organizational capacities. Yeah. And just talk a little bit about the mission of Northwest AHEC um, and how you see that playing out in our region. Yeah. So the mission is across the board. We've got a new mission statement that, you know, that, that are three big words of training, um, retaining, and recruiting. I, recruiting. recruiting. Thank you. Recruiting, training, and retaining. Uh, those are our three big words, which are fairly new to us, obviously. Um, but I, I kind of take it back and Really, the whole purpose of AHEC is to be a regional, defined by our 17-county region, right? A regional resource for everybody in the healthcare education and healthcare delivery world. So as proud as I am to be here and be on, on faculty at the Wake Forest School of Medicine, and as you know, I bleed in old gold and black in the Deacon world, um, to walk into any of any of the other health systems in our region and say, hey, I'm here from the Northwest AHEC. How can we help you? Like, what is it that you're struggling with? How can we, what, what resources can we leverage that we have to help you do that? And that that's truly what kind of keeps me going every day is, you know, every day is different. Like today's big theme, if you will, are a lot of educational institutions, our own plus all the other community colleges and four-year schools that have health science programs really trying to figure out how and if and how can our students, our health science students and all their disciplines and all their worlds, how can they help our communities in this COVID vaccine blitz, right? What What's an appropriate role? How do we make sure that they feel comfortable in doing that. Um, that's, I've been getting phone calls like that all day today. And today's kind of day one for that. For me. Yeah. So service mission, finding out where the opportunities are, asking what's necessary. I mean, I love all that. And I love that you started out by saying you came into the role and asked for help immediately. And I've, I've always found that as difficult for me as I over rely on self-reliance to ask for help. And I'm, you know, I'm finding that as, um, as I grow my humility to be able to ask and receive help. So I, you know, I, I've, I've, that message resonates with me a lot these days. And I've, I've always loved the opportunities that we have with Northwest AI because we do go out and look for needs in the, in the region and we keep our, uh, keep our eyes peeled for opportunities in that. And it's all based in serving and educating and, and retaining um, the healthcare workforce. And I guess that all, all that to say is what, what changes have you seen over the years that you've been in this role um, and what challenges have you seen and how, how has that evolved since you've been here? Yeah, I think the, the biggest change is when I first started, um, it was, it was crystal clear. Like there was no question that our role was in the education world, right? That was, if there was an educational need, we were the call. We were the ones to get that call to say, hey, you know, whether it's a long-term care facility that had a specific issue that they need some training, training on or the latest, greatest treatment of whatever, right? That that's, was always, always our role. Well, as healthcare has shifted from that service world, because I think it truly has, into um, it's still a service world, but there's this business component, right? This revenue component, this market share, insurance, reimbursement, payments, all of that stuff. What I've noticed is a 
attempts in very, very creative ways to use the educational mission that we have to promote clinical market growth, right? So there is not a week that doesn't go by that I don't get a call from somebody inside our system or in the region in the healthcare delivery world saying, hey, and it usually starts off with, we have a need that's right up AHEC's mission. <laughs> Great. What is it? Like, fill me in. What you got? And it, boil, it literally boils down to a new service line, new providers that need patients on their, on their, in their books to, to fill their appointments. And it's more of a marketing promotion rather than an education. And I've annoyed a lot of people um, internally as well as regionally, but I've stayed true to it. And that is there's an education deficit. I'm all in. But I've walked out of meetings because it wasn't an educational issue. It was a clinical revenue market share. We're trying to do this so that we do better, more or better than that over at that other institution. And those are that, that is that has been a tough shift. Um, uh, so that would be my my one big um, kind of aha moment, if you will, that is that I has that I have seen and witnessed and continue to witness on on many occasions. So, in your role as in, in uh, professorship in family and community medicine, so you interface with students, med school students, and and I guess residents, and you can explain that more. But what? What, uh, how do you triangulate that? You know, because they probably come in with this great, uh, desire to change the world and to help and to just really dive in and, and make a difference in the world. And then there's this whole piece of it's a business as well. So there's this reality of revenue and, and patient growth and, and that kind of thing. What, what is, how do you approach that with them? And, and like, I guess one, help them drill down what it is specifically they want, how they want to change the world and how to not get cynical or jaded about the business piece. Yeah. Well, I haven't figured out the latter yet, so, <laughs> <laughs> but, but what I, what I can say is that, um, you know, my, my role with the students, both medical and PA students over the years has really fluctuated um, in, in our own institution. I've been spending more time actually these days, student level wise, with students from Winston-Salem State University uh, primarily. Um, I serve on a lot of a lot of different boards and stuff over there with colleagues, and and it's a whole different world, right? To be a public historical black college um, versus the Wake Forest private, right? Um, both equally passionate about what they do, so. My what, what I've learned with students, particularly those who are earning the credentials to hang on the wall to go do their thing, is they're incredibly passionate. Right? Yet you have to be um, to, to even be into health career or health professions. It, it's not a job. It, you're, you're literally building a lifestyle and a, and a life around it. Um, and what I, what I have found is the students are so passionate. And they have such incredible ideas that nobody really knows if they're going to work. Right? I mean, we you know, um, but we're not going to know if they work or not unless we give everybody a chance to give it a go. So I spend a lot of time primarily with student organizations, whether they're, you know, the share the health fair group here at Wake Forest School of Medicine, um, various groups of student organizations over Winston-Salem State. And what I absolutely find refreshing and energizing when I work with them is everything is cut and dry, right? This is our need. We know this is a, the need in the community. So here's what we want to do to address that. need. And they don't get caught up in the way you can't do that. And, you know, you don't get caught up in the politics and then you, well, you got you to go ask permission for so-and-so. They're just, they're driven to, to fixing something. So what I've, what I do with them is work with them as best I can. Cause again, I'm not, I'm not giving anybody a grade. I, nobody gets assignments from me um, to be as helpful as possible to give something a try. And what I have found is, you know, to a student of any, in any health profession, um, 
you know, putting on a program, putting an activity get together, the real effort in that is actually the planning and the implementing. There's always this little thing called expense need and a budget and some, some money and trying to leverage our existing grant funds and whatnot that we already have in pocket that we don't have to go, you know, submit a 14 page application for to, to really leverage that. So that, that's kind of the, my stuff with students. Um, with the residents, the, the thing that I'm most involved in, and it's, it's really a, something that started um, out of Northwest IHEC when I first started here, and a professor by the name Dr. Jane Foy, who you know, Andrew, very well, beloved professor of pediatrics and passionate, passionate community health person. She and a, a staff member, a longtime staff member of Northwest AHEC, Anita Poli, who's a nurse educator and, again, very passionate and successful at that, put together a community plunge. And it's been a program now for 20 years. And almost every primary care residency program here um, and, and even the PA program here uses this community plunge, which is a community tour, uh, speaking to somebody and clients of social service agencies in our community. And it's not a, it's a driving tour, but it's not a driving tour of, oh, look at, look at, look at the rundown houses and look at the housing development. It's, it's an asset tour. So you drive by Goler Memorial Church, as you very well know, um, Andrew, and um, right in the East Winston zone, um, Goler Memorial has done incredible things in their community for their community. And the medical center and the medical school have done a lot to not do it for them, but to support them in what they wanted to do, right? So it's it's that kind of an asset to her. So when people talk about Reverend fill in the blank at Church X or Community of Faith Y, it gives the residents, the interns, especially who are new to our community, some concept of what that really means. Mm-hmm. Um. So you you've kind of danced around it um, the the concept of social determinants of health and I know that's a been been a big push of a, especially at AHEC we've been real uh, conscientious and uh, intentional about adding those uh, objectives to all our learning events and and diversity and inclusion and things like that how have you seen that evolve um, you know over the last five years and are you know aside from bringing it up and talking about it what what kinds of um, you know, rubber meets the road, you know, tangible things have you noticed that actually have, has, 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 uh, you know, been delivered to the community, let's say, or, or has, you know, what improvements and then also what challenges remain there if you want to riff on that for a bit? Yeah. So I'll take it back to your first uh, pointer and or question. Um, you know, I'm a public health guy, right? That's, that's my, that's my formal background. So back in 1992, when I got my public health degree, um, what we're now calling social determinants of health was just bonafide health of the public, public health stuff, right? You can't expect a child to learn and be healthy in school when there's a food deficit, hunger, and unsafe living conditions, however mm-hmm. that gets defined, right? Um, so... This new term, you know, the the sexy term of social determinants of health, um, you know, call it what you want. It's it's old. That's old school public health. And um, so I'm I'm energized. and I think that's really, really cool. And what I'm really seeing is what used to be only talked about in the public health sector, in the social work sector, in the community sector. People are talking about because it's it's appropriately getting interwoven into almost every conversation that I'm a part of. Right. So, again, in the pediatric world, it's really hard to talk about healthy kids ready to ready to go to school to learn when there's a food deficit and a hunger issue, a homeless issue. Right. I mean, it's unvaccinated, no, no vaccinations. So I think that's where I'm seeing it. Um, it's it's almost 
almost expected to be part of the conversation. And I take a lot of pride in, in the work that we've done. And I think we're just scratching the surface on it. We've got a long way to go. Um, but that's, you know, where the, where the medical model, where the mental health model, where the community health model, you know, all that is, is really coming together in a way that's a challenge. And it's a challenge because the business model that was the medical model um, needs to grossly adjust. And just like when the plumbing, when I'm having a plumbing problem at my house, um, I don't, you know, I don't fix anything. I don't, I don't, I'm not trusted with more than a screwdriver. I'm not touching that, but I'm calling somebody to come in and get that taken care of. And I'm paying that person. I don't, I personally don't have an insurance company or an insurance representative telling the plumber what they can and cannot charge me. Right. So I think that's where it's gotten, gotten complicated. And I think, I think we're going to get to the point where um, a stark realization that healthcare is expensive and it's not expensive. Yes. Do we have some fraud and abuse? Yes. Unfortunately we do. And, Unfortunately, I don't see that ever going away to zero, but the majority of our healthcare costs are legitimate costs. You, know, you, you want that emergency room opened and ready to go, God forbid, if you have to go into it. There's a cost to making sure that it gets ready, that it is ready for you, right? So I think that's, I'm kind of talking a little bit in circles, um, but I think that's all of that those conversations have to come together. And I think it's starting to, and what's, what's been really exciting. And, and I, I can't say that we played a whole lot into it, but um, it's a heck like, and, and we're very lucky here at, at our institution, the um, translational science Institute. Um, they're doing so much really good stuff with community engagement, you know, with, um, talking with groups of non-health professionals about what is it? What, what is it that we need to learn, right? Um, help us understand what, what we've got to do differently to better mm -hmm. serve you, your neighbors, you know, because we've got enough health data, right? I mean, we've got enough data to know exactly where the heavy users of the emergency room are coming from. And no surprise, you put it on a map, there's no surprise where that is, right? So what can we do in that community to make sure that we don't have to have an emergency run? Yeah, I, 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 that resonates a lot in the, the realm of, well, you know, it's not just social, it's economic um, issues. And, you know, it, it's, 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 you know, the privilege that I know I have about being able to leave my house and go for a run or go to the Y or go to the, you know, healthy grocery store and get everything. You know, we take that for granted. And I, uh, you know, I think that we all need to recognize and, and I think we are at AHEC recognizing it through culinary medicine program and some other things where, uh, you know, the preventive model of staying well um, is needs to be accessible for everyone so that the emergency room isn't in such demand, you know, but we also think that it's just, you know, it's just, you got to shift your mind and then you can be well, but we don't take it in, into consideration. The, the going outside for some people is not safe and certainly going for a run down the road is not safe and going to find healthy food is, is, further than your legs can take you, for example. So um, what are some things that you see in the public health world is, is moving towards that preventative model and that wellness model, but also taking into consideration those determinant factors that, you know, for transportation, food insecurity, safety, you know, all the, the Maslow's hierarchy on the first level kinds of things. I mean, do you see opportunity there do you see just challenge do you see like still a lot of work to do from the from the business side and getting people on board with that i mean we again i i've just i'm thinking we talk a lot about it and i just i don't know what action's being done yeah yeah i think so uh, some of the examples and 
one example has been around for a long time, but it's really um, taken off and, and, you know, we're involved in it in a volunteer way. And that's the, our local senior services organization, which I truly believe is one of the finest nonprofit organizations in our community. Um, you know, the Meals on Wheels program. So I, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I know on our, in our East Winston route, I think they call it the Salem route. Um, we have 15 people that we as a staff deliver to every other Wednesday um, a meal. And in absence of that meal, it's assumed that these folks who are still living in their home, maybe with some help, but fairly independent, would have to be in a nursing facility or long-term care facility, right? Just from an economic standpoint, the fact of orchestrating a hot meal delivery service to that group of people versus all of those people being in a long-term care facility. I mean, that's the, the budget impact um, is just ginormous, you know, with long-term care facilities being anywhere from two to three to $400 per day. Right. So that's one example that I think is really, um, really fascinating. The other one is one that is happening more and more in the clinical world. And again, NC Cares 360 is that we're a part of. It's just been a fascinating um, thing to really see come together. And it's taken a lot of really super smart people to figure out how to get all this moving and grooving. Um, but, you know, the downtown health plaza, it's one of the biggest Medicaid um, uh, clinics in our state. By volume, um, right? The volume. I mean, yes. Um, they've implemented, you know, social determinants of health screening. Okay. So when you're, when they're in the pediatrics one is my favorite example, because it's kind of quite honestly the easiest, easiest one to, for me to put my arms around literally is, you know, when you're doing a well child check or a vaccine check or a check of a child because they have a sore throat or an ear infection, um, you can ask that child a lot of questions and that child is going to be flat out honest with you. Mm -hmm. So if you ask a child, if they ever gone, had gone hungry to bed, hungry, um, anybody who's come even close to that experience, you're going to own that quickly. Now your loving parent, your loving guardian or whoever is with the child may try to sidestep that out of embarrassment. A kid's not, a child is not going to lie about that. So they have a program there that is just, unbelievable to me because if a child is screened as that they leave with two bags bagfuls of, of staple groceries just like we walked out of the grocery store with you know it's peanut butter and beans and pasta and and canned meat and stuff that's that's stable um but it's, it's a food prescription that's what they call it you know, and again, a lot of really smart people and a lot of funding from a lot of generous philanthropic organizations and whatnot have really put that together. And so that's one that's that's the one one little example. But I see that happening with, you know, the NC Cares 360 is how do you connect the healthcare medical model? Right. When Mrs. Jones is in the hospital uh, recovering from a heart attack, sending home. Well, let's be sure Mrs. Jones has everything she needs because the minute something goes a little haywire, guess what number is going to get called? 911 back in the emergency room where she doesn't want to be, where quite frankly, we don't want her to be, right? We want to, so it's how do you build around that? And um, I see a lot of that really, really cool stuff happening in that, in that sphere. Well, what it, just get your crystal ball out for a second, and um, what does it look like in in the retail world? You know, we we're starting to see clinics and the CVS and the Walgreens and things like that. How do we push that out further, or do you see a time when that's going to be pushed out into all communities where there's just, a, you know, a, a sense of here's a place you can go to get your blood pressure checked and get your sugar t tested and, and and get a vaccine and get this kind of thing, and all you got to do is show up and, you know, say you, this is what you need and, and you get it. Is that is that going to be a reality at some point? I think I think we're already there, actually. 
I mean, I think, I think in the more, in our more rural communities, um, it's a little less than, than in our urban and suburban world. Um, but I see that happening. And, you know, when it first started, I was, I was very skeptical of like the, that's just, that's, that's going to be bad. That's going to be bad care. That's going to be, well, you know, I was wrong because it's, um, it's not, I've used the CVS. Um, I actually was told by our own primary care uh, group and my primary care doc that that's where I needed to go to get my shingle shot when I turned the magical age that I recently turned. Right. So I think, um, you know, it, I, I think there's a place for that. And, you know, even, even our own institution, I know they're, they're trying to of trying to prevent people from unnecessarily coming to the emergency room. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, ads, they're all over. Uh, when you cut your finger off, that's an emergency room visit. When you have a cut on your finger, that's urgent care. Right. So the differential. Um, so I, I think that, you know, my crystal ball says that's here to stay. And, and the reality is, you know, once, once I step my foot into CBS to get my shingle shot, that I don't even think I paid for that. I think my insurance paid for that. Um, I picked up a few things that I needed while I was there. Right. Um, and so I think, I think, I think it's here to stay because I think it, I think the people who are running the businesses that want that component, I think it's a good thing for them. I think it's convenient. It's where people live, right? You know, if you ever want to know where you need to build, um, and I learned this a long time ago, um, a clinic, like a health clinic of some sort, find out where the latest new grocery store is going in. Because that grocery store chain put a lot of effort and time into the ideal location, right? Yeah. Um, it, so, so it's it's that critical mass, and so I think it's all here to stay. And um, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing, as long as everybody who's in the care of me, including the CVS, including my physician here at Wake Forest, including my physician, if I go elsewhere for whatever care, as long as everybody can communicate and see my record, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. And that's one of the benefits of the electronic health record system that it's been a big push for the what, last 10 years, I guess. And yeah. um, it's a challenge. It's a challenge, but it's a good thing because, you know, you know, the whole the electronic health record of if you didn't document it, you know, it didn't happen. Well, you've got to, uh, and I, I live with one of these, you know, passionate health professionals um, with my wife being a primary care doc uh, here locally. Um, that electronic health record um, can be a, be a real pain. Um, but once it gets to be a normal use and everybody understands it and everybody's able to use it, it can be a pretty amazing tool uh, that, that helps us. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, so switching gears back to students, um, I've asked several of my guests this question. Uh, in in dealing with students, have you noticed any differences of today's student versus student 19 years ago? Yeah, absolutely. Especially in the in the health professions, right? Um, you know, even taking it back even further. So 30 years ago when I started in medical schools in Philadelphia, it was a rare occasion, a rare occasion that the medical school applicant did not come straight from college, right? So they, the medical school admissions process was just full of these very, very young, very young, you know, 22 year olds coming straight out of college um, where we had to spend, I spent a lot of time even in Philadelphia helping medical students simply communicate, you know, how, how do you talk with somebody, you know, about, um, you know, bodily functions, right? That's an important thing to talk about when you're in the healthcare world, right? Um, and even when I got here, um, I did a lot with medical student kind of doctor patient relationship kind of stuff. And the students in my early days here, were nervous as could be to just talk to a patient in the hospital room 
who was not suffering, who was who was there for a reason, but they were fully alert, fully able, not uncomfortable to have a conversation. Um, incredibly nervous just to walk in the room and introduce themselves. And what we're what I what we're seeing now is students who are coming into medical school and health health science programs who are out of college for a couple of years. Maybe they've had a job. This is a career switch for them. They're much more comfortable in handling themselves and communicating and asking questions um, more, more today than even 10 years ago are married, uh, married with kids and trying to go through medical school. So it is, it's been a real, um, I found that to be really fascinating that, that kind of where the students are today in their personal life compared to where they were, you know, 20 years ago. So does that make them uh, a more diligent or driven student or just more, more socialized and more comfortable in, in, in those environments? Yeah, I think, um, again, I was on the admissions side, right? Very early on in my career up in Philadelphia. And the number of students that I met during that process or wannabe students who really didn't have a clue of what they were getting themselves into. Um, and a couple who during medical school admissions in Philadelphia interviews, which were not high, I'm not a, I'm not a high pressure kind of guy. Right. Um, so simple kind of casual and formal conversations. That was officially their interview. Just come out and say that they didn't want to be here, but they were here because of, parental pressure or friend pressure, you know, whatever it was, um, which, which took, you know, I was really surprised. I'm like, okay, well, this interview is now over. So let's talk about how you're going to go back and talk to your parents when you get your letter that says you haven't been accepted. Mm -hmm. So, cause you got to own that, right. That's, that's part of it. So I think, I think they're just that, that level of maturity and level of awareness of what it is they're really getting into, because it's not just a job. They're just not earning a degree to, to have a nice job. It, it is truly a lifestyle that is 24 seven um, with really difficult challenges on how to put the personal and professional work boundaries up. Um, mm -hmm. Really, really, those are really hard issues these days. Well, speaking of that, how, you know, uh, we'll shift into the pan age of the pandemic yeah. and it's kind of a two part question. One is, uh, Part one is how have you shifted your lifestyle because of the pandemic? Any new routines or lessons learned? And how has your wife, since she's a primary care doc, how has she shifted her, you know, way of life? And I know she's a fitness instructor and stuff like that. So I mean, a lot of things have been impacted on that. And just, you know, what 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 are the 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 challenges, the changes, and uh, the insights and lessons learned that that you have you've gotten? Yeah, well, you know, I think on, on the on the family side, right of of the whole, I mean, no different than anybody else. You know, um, we've seen a couple of mild major milestones in our kids' life that didn't happen the way we'd always envisioned them: high school graduation, college graduation. Um, you know, family gatherings. We we're we're a big again, pretty big family. So we know we know how to throw a, a party, and we do that. We did that on a regular basis. Um, how to stay connected to people, right? Um, so I think that's been that's been no different than anybody else. Quite honestly, I think I see that and I hear that. Um, the whole work remotely, right? Like today, I'm here in my office. It's the first time in a long time that I've been in here. Um, but primarily I'm working from home, like most all of us who are non patient facing. Um, and we have our youngest, our 10 year old fifth grader, uh, schooling from home right now. Right. And I've relearned for the fourth time that I am not smarter than a fifth grader, um, by any stretch of the imagination and that whole how to have a productive work environment, how to have a productive schooling environment, how to have a productive, um, you know, as much as you can separated space so that you can try to keep some semblance of, of normalcy, whatever that means. Right. And then, so I think, I don't think any of that is um, really any different. I think 
where it's for us, um, and again, watching, you know, my wife, who is a very successful primary care doc and, and passionate, passionate about her patients, um, just the level of stress um, that I see, again, non-clinical side of the world, she's obviously very clinical, from, you know, uh, working the uh, respiratory assessment centers where, you know, people can drive up and be tested to uh, on the phone, on the computer, doing electronic health records, responding to patients who are incredibly anxious about everything in the world, um, and then some on top of COVID concerns. Um, it, it, it's been, it's been a quite an eye-opening experience. Um, you know, and then we have our, our, so we graduated one, as you know, um, from college and he is adulting well and, and on his own and, uh, ready to go to graduate school. Um, got another one graduating in May. And the one who's a first-year student um, at George Washington in Washington, D.C., which is a whole other layer, layer of anxiety and concern with, with our world right now um, and, our polit- and our political spectrum that we've got going on. So, you know, all of that stuff, um, you know, it dogpiles pretty quickly on top. And so, you know, we've – Amy is – doing all of her fitness stuff as best she can, you know, the garage got turned into a gym, the, she's on more walking groups around the neighborhood. Um, you know, so that's, that stuff is, is going, going as well as to be expected. But, so, yeah. so resilience and adaptation. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and how, how have, have you, uh, you know, have you, just felt the same level of stress you always have and, or, or if you felt more and how do you deal with it? Yeah, it's, um, I was doing really well at the start of this, right? I mean, I mean, I felt, felt really good about it. I felt we were doing well, me personally, I was doing well. Um, it hit. And as you know, cause I've shared this, it was about two to three weeks ago, um, right after the first of the, you know, year we, we're very, we're very lucky to have a, uh, a family cabin, if you will, in the Pocono Mountains that we literally go there, stay on the property and don't leave it until we drive home kind of a thing. Um, so that's been a huge thing for us. So we had just come back from 10 days of that, which I don't think we've ever spent that kind of time up there. And it was just, it was phenomenal. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, and I, um, again, lucky that through all of this stuff, have my go-to people, right? And I went to them, <laughs> and I went to them pretty hard and said, what in the world is going on with me, right? Um, so it's, um, you know, it's exhausting, uh, you know, to to try to keep it all in check. And um, um, that, you know, it's it's like everything else, it ebbs and flows. And, and I think being honest about it, and in owning it, you know, not putting Pollyanna, oh, everything's great and sprinkle the pixie dust. I mean, no, this is, this is really hard stuff and it's important stuff. So let's, um, what I had to remind myself a couple of weeks ago was it, it's time to really uber focus in on not only what's important, but what's important in the long term. And, you know, again, we're lucky that we don't have patients waiting at our door right here, you know, cause I'm running 30 minutes behind. If I'm running 30 minutes behind, that means somebody didn't get a phone call on time or I'm not entering the zoom call on time and you can make up for that. Right. So we're, I feel very lucky on that front, but this, this, the whole, the whole vaccine push right now. Um, again, as you know, I've started getting involved in that a little bit. Um, it is, it is not just show up and roll up your sleeve and get stuck with a needle. I mean, there, there are some really uh, heavy-duty processes that have to go in. Um, so there is formal records and documentation at our local level, at the state level. Um, and uh, just last week was the first 
vaccine clinic that I showed up to kind of be the one of the traffic cops, right? And, you know, close to 1,800 people in seven hours got the vaccine in a very complicated kind of way. And, um, you know, that's, that's a, that my crystal ball is saying that that is, um, you know, there are a lot of smart people who are orchestrating a lot of that, but there are a lot of local nitty gritty details that, that have got to get worked out. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate your vulnerability on answering that first part of that question. And, and maybe the s- second question is, is having been on the front lines of that um, last week, did you notice any things that could be simplified or streamlined or, you know, what, what kind of education needs are there and what kind of uh, process things did you notice? Yeah, I think um, the one thing is what, what really, really surprised me and several longtime colleagues and friends who, who I kind of had an opportunity to have a safe chat with as we were walking and, walking through the lines as they were waiting in line, um, the, the positive energy of people lined up to get this thing that they've been so longing and waiting for, it was palpable. Like it was really kind of cool, um, on that front. Um, and I didn't expect that at all. I thought it was going to be a bunch of grumpy people complaining because they had to wait more than 10 minutes. I mean, that's what I was expecting. And it was none of that. Yeah, there were a couple people who needed some, you know, corner time, if you will, to kind of chill out and get it and take it relaxed a minute. But um, it's I didn't see anything glaring at the end of the day because it's just the the protocol requires so many things from, you know, you can't get the shot unless you're registered with the state vaccine system. That's first thing. Well, then you've got to be sure that you're registered with our internal, you know, again, these are all employees, employee health system, which is a whole different system. Then uh, you got to get the shot. Then you've got to sit socially distanced with mask on no more than six feet closer to anybody for 15 minutes to make sure you don't have a reaction. And we did. We saw one young um, staff member who had uh what I would call an anaphylactic reaction to the shot. And boy, oh boy, everybody was on their game. Here comes the stretcher, here come the docs, here come, you know, and boom, 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 boom. They got her taken care of out and we proceeded with the line. Um, but when you have all those systems, as you, as you know, as a computer systems person, right? You know, we weren't the only ones typing into that system. Like there were eight to 10 people chatting, typing away well, the system is connected somewhere in Raleigh. And we were just one of many health systems doing that at the same time. So it's the system slowed down, the system went down, the system came back up. You know, I mean, it's just all of those logistical things through nobody's fault, just of sure volumes, right? So uh, that's a long answer to your question, which is I really didn't see anything um, except I think people needed, and I spent my day the entire time, you know, you're almost there. As soon as you do this, we're going to send you over here. We're going to get you checked in. You're going to go get your shot. Just people were healthcare people. So we wanted to know, everybody wanted to know, well, when I'm done with this, where do I have to go and why? Mm-hmm. And couldn't I get that done down there? Like maybe, but that's not the way it's set up right now. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Some, some interesting challenges, but it seems like there's a lot of hope and enthusiasm about, about that. I mean, it's sort of when you describe that, it's like how I would feel lining up to go run a 5k race or something like that. Everybody's just anxious and ready and doing their part to follow in line and, and, and get to the finish line. So, yeah. uh, all right. Switch gears is a personal questions. Uh, yeah. what are you, what are you reading right now and why? Oh, i just got done reading, reading, Lady Clemmy and about um, Clementine. Um, <laughs> Churchill, Winston okay. Churchill's wife and the role that she played. And it's a it's a historical fiction. Right. Um, but it, the role that is well documented that she played in the World War Two and, and really in in 
Churchill, his, his entire career. Um, fascinating, fascinating book. Highly recommended. Nice. <laughs> um, let's see. How is your, uh, um, let's see, how, how, how are you continuing to serve on all the many boards that you're on? Or is this Zoom Zoom time still? And just is are you f- feeling some Zoom fatigue? Yeah, I am. <laughs> yeah, I think you know I've been. That's been from the minute I got here um, in 1996. It was made crystal clear to me by the leadership, Dick Janeway, Jim Thompson, all of them, that we do we do things differently here at Wake Forest and. One of the expectations when you're in any kind of a leadership role, define that how you wish, because um, I, I wouldn't have defined my original role as a leadership role by any stretch of the imagination. Um, we are actively, actively engaged in our community. And so I have been, and I've been very lucky with that. I've, been, I've loved it. I've learned a lot. Um, I've met people I otherwise would never have met before and have found some non-healthcare, non-medical school, medical center mentors out of that exercise. Um, And, you know, I think that, um, and the good news for me is because that's the expectation and almost every one of the boards that I'm currently serving on right now have an alignment with our mission in education or healthcare, right? So that it, it's it's easy because of that alignment. It's easy that that I can spend time and effort on that. Um, I have a, I have a, I'm chairing one group. Um, we're having a big powwow on Thursday, and it is. It's a lot of Zoom. It's a lot of, you know, what's the what's what's critical for this nonprofit or this organization, this red hot second in this red hot moment, um, and then what do we quite honestly what do we need to be doing different when we get to that next normal, whatever it is, right? Because, and you and I have had this conversation, Andrew, we're not going back the way it was. Like I can almost guarantee my professional travel, because I did a good bit of it, is going to be cut way back just because we've learned how to do this. Um, And yeah, I love going to the, meetings at the nice places and grabbing a nice meal with everybody. And we'll have some of that, but I don't think we're going to have the level anywhere near we had before. Yeah. I, I will miss some of that too. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so speaking of travel, you've been to Africa several times on, on, on these, uh, medical mission. Well, I wouldn't call it medical missions, but learning, uh, missions. And, you know, what is, is there one thing that you've, taken away from that that you uh that you employ in your daily life yeah yeah again uh, i have been very lucky with a group called simpad a consortium for international management policy and development and it i got involved in that through dear friend who was the (coughs) the dean of health sciences at winston-salem state uh (coughs) dr peggy valentine She's now the interim chancellor at Fayetteville State, um, known her for many, many years. But she asked me to get involved in that, and I'm ever so thankful and grateful that she did. Um, so as we've traveled around to lots of different African um, countries and communities and met with leaders of all shapes and sizes, you know, there are things that they do really, really well, really well. And when we were in um, Botswana, um, they've been doing this interprofessional education since the beginning of time, because that's the way they started, right? And so we struggle in our in our health education world, how to make that work, right? How to make sure that the medical students and the nursing students and the physical therapy students and the social work students can work together and learn together and learn from each other. Um, That's the way they've been doing it. And so I've learned a lot that way. And I've also learned that even, even when you're greatly limited in resources, whatever, whatever the pot is that you have, 
um, the challenge is always what's the priority and, and, and how to prioritize and how to leverage and how to make sure that you partner in an appropriate way. So there's, you know, um, a lot of things that uh, I've learned that I was asked to go and help with. I came back going, you all, you all got that nailed. Like we're nowhere near where you are here. Mm -hmm. Well, when you said resources, that's the first thing that popped in my mind is it's like we have so many resources here and that's afforded us the, the ability and privilege to be so specialized um, and those countries that in those places that don't have many resources, they have to really focus on the preventative side and not be so specialized and, and not be able. I mean, of course, they can't serve some of the more complex uh, complications and, and afflictions, I guess. But, uh, you know, that's a lesson I think that that we all could learn is like it's not the amount of resources that you have. It's it's how you focus on the present and what's most needed and how you address that. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a good message. So, well, let's wrap up. Um, as you always say in our daily huddles, you know, anything for the good of the whole? I don't think so. This has been really cool, Andrew. So thank you for having me. Well, I, I appreciate it. I'm honored that you could spend an hour with us and, and, and discuss all these things. And I appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. Take care. Peace.